at that point, it's, it's so funny because I felt excited when she said that, even, even upon looking out and seeing that we were at the hospital. Welcome to The Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health. From depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello. Hey, I want to welcome Jermaine Tolbert to the show. Jermaine also goes by Nate Calloway, so uh, many out you may know him as Nate Calloway. Nate is a songwriter. He's also an author. He's written a book, and he is also the creator of Project Genius of a Schizophrenic, um, and we will be getting into all of that. So I uh, want to welcome Nate. Thank you for joining me, Nate. I'm really excited uh, to have you on the air. Thank you, Al. I appreciate it. I'm very, very welcome. I feel welcome, and I'm, I'm glad to be on the show. Hey, so I want to start, you know, um, just if you could share a bit about yourself. All right. Uh, well, I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan. Um, I'm number nine of 10 um, of, of children that my parents both had together. Um, kind of raised in the church mostly my entire life. Um, had an infinity uh, for music at, at an early age, seven or eight years old, started playing the piano by ear, uh, and then kind of towards like age 16, I actually learned that I could sing, which was a very, 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 uh, what do you call it, huge surprise for me, because I, I just didn't know I had an enemy. And I began singing, um, singing in school, and then uh, churches, uh, got into a few groups, gospel groups and situations, uh, kind of traveled um, around different states, uh, singing at different church events, different um, actually secular events as well. Um, I ended up going to Eastern Michigan University. That's in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, studied mechanical engineering for a while uh, and then actually got out of that and just kind of went full throttle into uh, music. Uh, so so I, I think that's a little bit of my background. Yeah, that is interesting. So, man, it sounds like music's been a huge part of your life for a long, long time. Absolutely. Absolutely. What, uh, what was the impetus to study mechanical engineering rather than uh, following your passion with some type of music? Oh, I knew that I had to make a living, uh, and I knew that mechanical engineering produced a great income, and that was literally the only logic behind it whatsoever. I was great in math my entire life uh, and felt like I could do it, and that's the type of person I am. I know that I could do whatever I put my mind to, and so I just went for it just because I knew that it would make a good living, but it wasn't for me, and it definitely did not interest me on a level of anything that would equate put passion to it. I couldn't put passion behind it because I wasn't passionate about it whatsoever. Yeah, that's cool that you were able to figure that out and follow your passion and go down the path of music. Um, I do some coaching, kind of like peer coaching, and we talk a lot about living the life of your values, right? And, and your interests and yeah. your passion. Um, and clearly that is the musical piece for you. Um, so you, uh, it sounds like you have a dual diagnosis, a diagnosis of depression as well as schizophrenia, correct? Right. Yes. And schizophrenia is pretty unusual. Um, I believe the statistics are 1% 
of the population, at least in the U.S., um, has wow. a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Wow, that's crazy. I had no idea. Yeah, that is a, very crazy. Wow. Make, makes you a very unique person. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, when? Uh, how old were you? How long ago was it that you got these diagnoses? Uh, this was in what, 2010. Okay, so only seven, eight years ago. Yeah. Wow. And what was it? Uh, first of all, do you do you think that it was at that time when these two mental illnesses actually manifested, or do you think you had these at a much earlier age and just didn't realize what was happening until that point? This was actually right there on the spot that year, um, never, ever having any troubles with thinking, any troubles with rationality. Um, what I what I really believe happened was um, I, I got introduced to marijuana. Um, I had never, ever smoked a day in my life, that, that being cigarettes or anything. Um, and... Uh, a lot of people, a lot of my friends were smoking weed, never knew why they did it, but I knew I didn't want to. But at this point in my life, I was, but now, you know, into alcohol, into partying. And, and so I was around it. And so I actually wanted to try it. I wanted to see exactly what everybody, you know, what, what was the fuss about this thing or whatever. So I tried it and I literally smoked marijuana for like seven and a half weeks or seven and a half months rather from that first time ever taking that first puff, which is really, really, really crazy. And, and so things started to shift towards, uh, towards, I guess that seventh month. Um, I started to hear, you know, when I would get marijuana, I started to hear people refer to it as gas. I didn't know, you know, what that actually meant because I heard, you know, many times people call it loud and you have people have so many different names for it. And so I would hear this word, this term gas. Uh, and at, at, like I said, at the time, I didn't know what it was, but I would just get it anyway. And then I would smoke it. But I did notice a difference, though, knowing like having my own recollection, I could actually remember smoking, you know, natural marijuana. And then when people refer to this thing called gas, I noticed something very, very different with it, even in actually like my throat in the way it felt. Um, but still, I didn't had no clue what was going on. I, I hadn't studied anything on marijuana whatsoever. I was just doing you know, this, this fad, this thing that everybody was doing. And, and so, um, that, uh, kind of, kind of made my thinking a little bit, you know, off. I was a little bit spacey. Um, I had, I had thoughts of, um, that, that paranoia really, I think, I think what they diagnosed was paranoia, uh, paranoia schizophrenia. And so I had, I was fearful of, pretty much almost everything that could have any type of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Any threat towards my emotions, um, I, I will be thinking that other people would probably be thinking something crazy about me, you know, and not, you know, them maybe not even ever knowing me or having a conversation with me before, but I was fearful of what they could be thinking. And was that um, only, remember, was, I'm sorry to interrupt, was that only when you were, when you were high or was that also any time during that seven month period, whether you were high at the time or not, you were still paranoid? It was definitely with with you know being high because I was on I was high on a consistent basis like daily and it was multiple times in a day like okay. it, it was rare you know when I was not high right. so it was definitely yeah it was just crazy so you were gonna describe it a bit more uh, the paranoia and and also I'm curious uh, when you say this gas 
it sounds like you're describing it as something other than marijuana that you were actually taking, but kind of unaware of. Is that correct? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to, you know, kind of fast forward there. But since you asked, so I, I end up, you know, going into a mental institution. I was th- uh, there for 10 days. And afterwards, um, I took some time to actually do some research because, you know, something was wrong. Something was clearly wrong. And I wanted to get to the bottom of why, why did this suddenly happen? I've, I've been, you know, an excellent person and on an accelerated you know, path to greatness this entire time. And now this event has just kind of happened. It just kind of just almost wiped away everything that I had worked for. And so I did my studies on it and I found out that people were like, or people still do like dip like their marijuana and like embalming fluid and things like that. And, and I'm just like, maybe that's what they were, why they kept referring to the, Oh, this is, this, this is how they would say it was, like, Oh, this, that gas, this is that gas. Okay. And I'm like, that that's the only thing like it's like chemical you know chemicals on it so that's probably why they say that right and so you attribute your depression your paranoia and your schizophrenia all to what you're referring to as gas it sounds like yeah it definitely triggered from marijuana for sure um because i would imagine that there are some people listening to the podcast who may say Ah, no way. You know, I've smoked marijuana a ton. In fact, there's medicinal uses for marijuana. There's no way marijuana was what brought this on. Um, but you know, I mean, obviously there are many different thoughts. I do know that some, you know, early twenties, I think is, is what I've read about for the typical onset for schizophrenia. So your timeline sounds pretty typical, actually, whether there's marijuana in the play or not. Um, because if you're 32 now and it was eight years ago, would have put you early, early twenties, right? Yeah. Like mid twenties. Yeah. Yeah. So I did jump us ahead by asking you about the term gas, but I want to step back a bit now. And you mentioned you were in a psych ward for 10 days. What was it that finally brought you to the psych ward? Well, this particular night, um, so I I was with a, a young lady um it, it was some really 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 freakish things happening just between her and i um and this all had to do with my irrational thoughts uh that 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 paranoia that i was telling you about um and so i was feeling really 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 off uh, in terms of my thoughts and suddenly I, I got a call from my brother who who i actually don't talk to on a regular basis um Growing up, we, we had nothing in common, really. He's not into sports. I am. Like, there was just no commonalities between us. And so it kind of kept us from having a close relationship. But he called me out of the clear blue one, one, one evening while I was at this young lady's house. Uh, and he called. And it was so, so weird. Um, here, here I, I, let, me, let me share this story because I think this is a, a really interesting story. And it's definitely correlated to, you know, the whole schizophrenia, paranoia. Yeah, so this absolutely. night... This night, while with the young lady, we went to pick up her friend, uh, I think our cousin, rather, who worked at a store, Target. And she was still on shift, her cousin. And so she wanted to, my my lady friend, she wanted to do some shopping or whatever. And so we were doing shopping. And there was like a microwave on like the third third shelf of, of the Target store. And she wanted to, you know, I guess, check it out or whatever. So she asked me to, to, to pull it down. And so I reach up and I grabbed the box. And I turned to put it into the basket 
And man, suddenly, I, I wish I wish I could really put it in words where somebody could actually jump into me to feel what I was feeling. My body began to feel like almost light as a feather. It was it was almost like I felt something like jump into my body, which was really 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 weird. And I felt very very light, and I felt almost like a. a you know when you when you when you take in helium out of a balloon, you get that feeling in your head. Well, I had that feeling all over my entire body, and, and it was really really weird. And so, but she didn't know anything was going on. But I just felt really really like lethargic and like it was just really crazy. So we get into the car once her you know her cousin finally got off shift. We all three of us get into the car. Her cousin is driving, and we both get into the back seat. All of a sudden, my breathing, it becomes erratic. It, it literally feels like there's someone actually grabbing my heart, squeezing it. That's That was the feeling. And I was having troubles breathing. And I told my friend, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm having, I said, I can't really breathe. It feels like somebody's crushing my heart. And she gave me this like grin. And it was kind of weird because she, the way she smiled it was like I, I wouldn't imagine anybody to smile after you told them that you're actually having trouble breathing um but even even still we we, we end up going back to my my lady friend's house we get there and my thoughts at this point are really like okay who is she you know you know what is she you know here in my life for it, it you know how could she i'm still thinking about her grin and like is she against me is she is she has she set has she set me up and i had some really 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 crazy thoughts man on this particular night and then so when my brother to call which is very very odd because we don't speak and i hadn't spoken to him when he called these were his exact words hey nate you doing all right wow that was that was it it, it was it wasn't like a conversation starter. He called with the tone as if I'm concerned for you. Yeah. How long had it been since you had talked to him last? Probably months. It's okay. not that we don't have, you know, it's not that we have any, you know, beef or anything like that. Right. We just we're just not close. Yeah. And this is just weird. And like I said, it wasn't a conversation starter like, oh, I'm doing good, blah, blah, blah. It was I'm concerned about you, man. What's going on? What's happening? Almost as if, like, almost as if, as if he was there to see all my episode, and it was just so weird. And, and you know what was so crazy though? At that moment, I had to be honest. I said, I was like, I said, I don't know. And he said, Do you want me to come and get you? Like, like this was the shortest conversation I've ever had. It was so, so, so peculiar. I, I really can't even explain it. And I even asked him like a year later, like, why, why did you call me that night? He said he doesn't even know why. Wow. Like, I'm like, you, you sounded so concerned. Like, how? He's like, I don't know. And so, uh, so, so let me continue the story. And so I'm like, I'm, I don't know. He's like, do you want me to come get you? And I said, yeah. So I packed my things up. He and my older, oldest sister, they came and picked me up. And um, my sister, she's like, um, so yeah, where do you want to go? And I, I said, I don't really know. She's like, you want to go to mom's house? I'm like, nah. I, at, this, at this point, I, I actually have some feelings toward my mom at, during that time that I really didn't want to go there because I didn't feel like that would be the place where safety was. That, right. that wouldn't be the place where I needed to be. She said, do you want to go to dad's house? I said, no. Nah. I, didn't, I didn't feel that same safety that I really needed to feel to go somewhere. I said, no. And immediately, I started crying right there in the car. Uh, I was crying because in that moment, I recognized, wow, I have nobody to talk to. I don't know. I know no one can even uh, 
understand what I'm going through. And I just started, I just began crying, just really, really, really crying because I, I knew that I had no one at this point. Nobody could pretty much save me or nobody because I actually, when, I, when my brother called and asked, do you want me to come get you? I, I actually felt that this was a sign. I felt that like God was prevent, uh, causing an intervention for me to, to help me out in this situation. Because like I said, we don't talk and he called with this concern. I'm like, okay, this has to be, you know, something, you know, that God is actually setting up and orchestrating for me to be able to get some help in some way. And uh, so that's why I said, yeah, you can come get me. And so I started crying in the car and then, you know, my sister's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And, and I literally, I remember the words that I said, I said, I just love God. That was my answer because I didn't really want to go into any of what I was going through because I knew they wouldn't understand it. And that was my answer. I just love God. And so she actually ended up taking me to the hospital right then and there. She's a nurse. And so what I'm assuming is she, she saw warning signs and she, she, she drove me. And it was funny because when we pulled up to the hospital, uh, I didn't know where she was taking me. Um, at this point, I'm just still crying. I'm not even paying attention to where we're going. But when we got there, I remember her saying, hey, uh, don't try to run. And at that point, it's, it's so funny because I felt excitement in me when she said that. Even even upon looking out and seeing that we were at the hospital, I actually felt excitement kind of burst in me. Because I, then I really started to believe, well, maybe this is something that you know God has kind of orchestrated for me to get some help. And so we, we, we pull in and we go into the ER and that night I got admitted and I was there 10 days. Wow. You must have talked to your sister since then, uh, I would imagine. And did you ask her what, what she saw and what she experienced that made her decide to take you to the hospital? I've never, no, we've never had that conversation. Huh. Strangely, I sound, we've never had that conversation. Yeah. So, so you walk into the hospital, does your sister and brother, do they join you? Yeah, they're, they're there, um, and, you know, she, she you know, signed some paper, whatever, and then now we're waiting in the waiting area, and then now I see other family members coming in. Like I said, I'm number nine of ten, so <laughs> just a boatload of people. You guys <laughs> must have coming. filled up the whole ER. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously a very caring family, by the way, and cool how you describe your brother, you know, as, I know you said you didn't have a beef, but you also didn't sound like the tightest of brothers either. And for him to be like, let me just come and get you. Um, yeah. that's, that's clearly you're very loved by your family. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So family starts showing up. You still don't know what's going on really. Probably you just, it sounds like you recognized, Hey, I'm finally getting help. And, uh, so before you take us into the ER, actually, and, and get into that, I'm curious, do you look back and think that some of what you were dealing with with this woman, friend of yours, could have just been your paranoia? Because you did describe a lot of paranoia over the, the months of smoking the marijuana and the gas and so forth. Um, could it just have been your mind playing tricks on you? Or do you really think she was kind of a i don't know out to get you in a way no no i don't think she was out to get me uh whatsoever and actually no no whatsoever she was out to get that that was definitely just my mind that was you know that marijuana yeah. having its place yeah right so then you you get to the er you know actually what you've described so far to me just makes me think of talking to other men who have been through panic attacks and, you know, like the heart racing or like you described it, somebody squeezing your heart. 
so I'm curious, you, you wait in the waiting room, you get called in and, and take us from that point. Uh, at that point, um, yeah, I'm waiting and then they call us in and they pretty much have me on a bed. Um, I guess my family is still kind of talking to, you know, my, like my, I guess like my mom and dad was there now. And so they're talking to doctors and stuff like that. Um, I didn't know. I was actually about to be there for 10 days. I definitely didn't know that. Um, but I don't know. It, it was just kind of also fast. And it was at the same time, seeing my siblings around, you know, the way they were looking, it kind of made me uneasy. And so I just, I remember actually just putting the covers, the sheets on the bed over my head. I didn't even want to see, you know, their faces because just, I, I just didn't want to. Yeah. And so a, a lot of what happened, really, I, I had my head under the sheets and I remember even, you know, my bed moving. Um, I guess they were moving me here and there, wherever they were taking me. And I, I hadn't even looked up to see where I was going or, you know, or anything like that. And then did they, you met with one doctor, several doctors, and the, did they give you a diagnosis right then and there? No, it wasn't right then and there. Um I actually didn't get a diagnosis until probably, I don't know, maybe a couple of days um, okay. when a, a doctor actually showed up uh, and took me out of my, my room and we had a conversation. He asked me a series of questions. Um, one in particular uh, that kind of stands out, I wrote about it in my book. Um, he asked, do you feel like, uh, do you, do you, do you feel like that there is a TV or radio speaking directly to you? And it was it was kind of weird when he asked it because that night, even while even while in the waiting room, I remember listening to the TV and it did almost feel like there was like a message toward me just coming from the TV, which was really, really weird. And even even that night while with uh, my lady friend, uh, we actually went to the gas station before getting to our home. And this was a weird, weird occasion. So, you know, just you, you step outside anywhere. You're seeing people all the time. People having conversations with whomever they're having conversations with. You're hearing people talk because that's what we do. And so while we were at the gas station, I got out to pump the gas. And I'm seeing, you know, people going in and out of the gas station. I'm hearing people in the parking lot talking. And, and it was so weird because I was so afraid. I was so fearful that paranoia was like even building up in me. Then I actually thought that people were talking to me, like saying, you know, just, you know, like I said, they could be having conversations with whomever, whether they're on the phone, whether they're talking to somebody, my brain was registering it as if they were actually speaking to me. Right. And so you can only imagine somebody having their own conversation and you're flipping it and making it about you. And so I was hearing crazy stuff and I'm thinking like, well, why are you saying this? Like this, this is all going on in my head. Like it was so, it was so freaky, man. It was so, so crazy. Um, yeah, it sounds scary. It was absolutely. Um, so two days, two days in or so of your 10 days, oh, yeah. the, the doctor actually does diagnose you um, and tells you a, I'm giving you the diagnosis essentially of depression and, paranoid schizophrenia yes how how did i mean that must be tough to hear right or and maybe it wasn't how did it feel um i can't really say if it i didn't i didn't feel like it was 
it, it was man, it was so hard. It's hard, so hard to explain because I was in that 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 spacey place. It was it was it was like I, I don't know. It, it, I just heard what he said and just kind of said, "Oh, okay." Yeah, it's it's really hard to explain. It, it, there was no feelings. Yeah, well, you might have been on some meds as well, and um, and it was probably I would imagine a mix of feelings. I mean, part of it might have been like, well, this now explains quite a bit, right? Well, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't on meds at that point. They okay. they hadn't actually given me meds at that point. They gave me meds after the diagnosis had okay. come. But at, at that point, I was just kind of dealing with my own um, thoughts and my own feelings uh, alone by myself. Right, right. And when you were in there in the hospital for 10 days, what was that like? Was there some education? Were you staying in your room 24 hours a day? Were there other patients that you didn't interact with? Man, that it, it was some it was some weird stuff happening, man. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, it was some weird stuff. Um, let, let's see, I have, I have a few different stories. I remember one story where um, I, w- I was not in my actual room, and by the way, I shared a room with someone. But they have, you know, a, a big room where everybody can come and kind of just get together. And I think we were all actually playing cards, man, at a table. Um, and and this was my mind, my my, my brain was actually still, uh, at this point, still kind of trippy. And so even I was actually having a difficult time, even at the table, taking in their their words, uh, trying trying my best not to associate their words with me because <laughs> a lot we don't even know each other, and they was they they were not talking to me, but my brain was trying to register everything as they were communications toward me. And so it was, that was even kind of scary. How could I, it was, it was, um, I'm trying to give an example of what it may feel like. It was like, you know, how you try to play something off. Like, let's say you, you may be tripped and fell and somebody saw you, you try to play it off, you know, as if nothing actually happened or something like that. It was, it was as if I'm sitting there, I'm trying to play it off as if all of your words aren't affecting me. But I'm trying to be cool and just play this card game as if I'm a normal person. Right. <laughs> Something definitely going on, you o- know. And almost actually, like a masquerade. I, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, th- there was a, another situation too where a young lady uh, she she brought this. This was really 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 weird. I'll probably never forget this. Um, a young lady she she had like a big poster board and she drew some a lot of stuff on it roses, rainbows, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And she brought it to me. But first of all, this other guy, he told me, he said, yeah, she, this, the, uh, this girl likes you. She, 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 uh, this is, this is happening inside of the, 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 the hospital, the psych ward. And I'm like, huh? So she, he's like, yeah, she likes you. <laughs> so she ends up bringing me this poster board. He said, here, I drew something for you. And she gives me the poster board and she said, I noticed you haven't sang for me. And I'm just... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm at, at this point, now I'm, I'm kind of scared even, I'm like, I don't even know you. You don't even know me. How do you even know that I seen? And like, why are you saying this to me? Like that was, that was a very, very, very peculiar and weird situation. So I, I, I noticed you haven't seen for me. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and do you think that was actually happening or, or could this have been some of your paranoia? No, no, this, this definitely happened. <laughs> okay. Like, okay. <laughs> she, she brought the poster board to me. That is awesome. <laughs> um, so you're engaging with some patients and stuff, and are you seeing doctors? And do you all get together for any kind of 
learning, like to learn about your illness and stuff? Are there any kind of classes or anything? Yeah, they, they had, they had some, um, like there, there was this one, um, it was probably about maybe 11 to let's say 14 people in one room. And there was one person in there, um, uh, doctor personnel, whatever. And it's just kind of just letting the people go around the room and kind of tell exactly like why they feel like life has significance. And this was a, such a, this was actually an eye opener for me. And it was, it was like, I was just leaving it that it was an eye opener uh, hearing, hearing people go around, tell their stories of why they don't feel like life has significance and why they feel like they ought to just be dead. And, and, it, and just so candidly and just so effortlessly speaking against their own life. I was like, wow, like I have been so fortunate and I am fortunate. It, 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 that was that was that was just a huge eye opener. It, it, it was really 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 crazy. Uh, there was this one situation where they had like a, 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 a movie playing or video or whatever, and just kind of it wasn't necessarily education on diagnosis per se, but it was just I, I guess it was an informational video. I can't remember what it was about, but it was nothing of you know hey this is what you have and this is you know it, it was nothing like that. And so. Did you ever have any kind of feelings like that? Um, suicidal ideations, any, th- any type of thoughts like that as well? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, th- there was a situation where I didn't want to kill myself, but I actually felt as if what if what would life be if I wasn't here? Maybe, maybe I actually, what if it was, it may, it may have been better if I wasn't born. Like those were really right. legitimate like really really legitimate thoughts like i actually wondered my brain went to a space where it actually wondered what you know what would it be like if i just was not here if i wasn't alive but i did i had no intention no you know i I did not want to kill myself whatsoever but but there was there is a a peculiar uh, situation with it so i actually started praying right i actually this is the state of mind that i was in i actually i was praying that God would cause like a whirlwind and like actually take me out of the earth, which is, I know it sounds very, very bizarre, but it is what it is. Like I said, that was a state of mind that I was in. I actually wanted to, I wanted him to just uproot me. (laughs) Right. Right. Just take me to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. So 10 days pass and then take us from there. You, you're leaving the place and are you, are you excited to get out? Are you worried? Like, oh boy, here comes the real world again. No, I'm ecstatic to get out. I was actually, I thought I would actually be out sooner than the 10 days. I remember myself going to ask, like, hey, well, when, when can I leave? When can I leave? And I remember they told me, they said, well, hey, what is your, they, they said, they asked, well, what is your normal um, weight, you know, your, uh, you know, that you, that you typically have? And I said, well, I'm usually about 165, 170. At this point, I had no idea, right? They said, you're actually 20 pounds below Whoa. your actual weight. Yeah. And, and so th- then it, it kind of dawned on me. Well, like, while I was smoking marijuana, I got I was smoking so often that my appetite was so sporadic, I only wanted to eat when I was high. Other, other than that, I wasn't even hungry. And so I literally kind of flipped my entire appetite. And that's how I know that when she said that, I said, wow, like that's, I'm sure that has to do with my appetite because I'm, I'm usually not hungry. Only time I'm hungry is 
when I smoke weed or it's so funny because when I know that I need to eat, I'd go smoke weed so that my hunger is actually even exacerbated. Right. And so they said, well, until you get back up to your weight, that's when you can actually leave. And, and that was why I believe that the duration was 10 days. I actually needed that long for, for me to gain those 20 pounds. Wow. That's really interesting. I haven't heard of anybody, you know, in the, like a psychiatric ward who, was staying based upon weight but um but it makes sense yeah yeah it, it made a lot of sense when, when she said that and knowing how i knew that my my eating habits were way off like yeah. I, I knew that but i had no idea that i had dropped 20 pounds below that that was it's like 140 something i'm like wow that's crazy right and prior to going into the hospital you had um, some incredible stuff going on with your musical career, correct? Right, yeah. Uh, I was literally in mid-process of signing a recording contract with Oscar and Grammy Award winner Pharrell Williams, uh, myself, and two of my childhood friends. Um, we we set that situation up. Uh, well, me and one of the guys, we actually were in a gospel group um, in my like high school days, early, you know, kind of going into college or actually post-college days, post-Eastern Michigan University. Uh, we were doing a gospel group situation and, and we actually traveled. That's what I was kind of explaining a little earlier. We traveled around different states and all over our city, uh, singing at different church events and things like that. And so we that, that group had ended, and a friend of mine, his name is Jay Drew Sheard. He's the son of a Grammy Award winner, uh, Karen Clark Sheard, of, of the uh, legendary gospel group, the Clark Sisters. Um, he had signed on to Pharrell's Star Trek Entertainment as their first in-house producer. And uh, Jay Drew gave myself and my other friend gave us a call and said, hey, I was talking to Pharrell, and he's, he's wanting to start a group. And I told him about you guys. And there it was it was like okay absolutely let's do this and so we were we we began the the recording process and what was so crazy when we began the recording process maybe like a few days later was when i was actually introduced to marijuana and so it, it all happened so quickly it was just so so kind of strange really um and that that whole pro we we recorded maybe i don't know close to 20 songs, maybe 15 to 18 songs uh, within maybe like a year and a half-ish time. Um, and um, and so when I finally got out of the, that's why I was really kind of happy to get out. I really wanted to get out because, you know, I have a life to, to go on. I'm, I'm midway into signing this deal. Um, I have you know, people, people around my city, they know me. It, it, it was really, really, really crazy how that one event happened right in this in smack dab in the middle of all this excitement. It was so crazy. It was like, a, but it just came to a screeching halt when that happened. And so I get out, uh, this is post 10 days. And so now I'm at home, I'm trying to figure out what, what's going on, man. Like, like, like I said before, why, why, why did this happen? And what triggered it? So, like I said, I started doing my studies on, you know, the the marijuana and things like that. And they actually gave me some medicine um, in the hospital, and they told me to take it um, for 30 days um, after I got out. And they said if I felt I needed more, then to go ahead and to get, you know, re up on the prescription. Um, I actually ended up stopping my actual regimen of taking that, like some like 20 something days. I just I just stopped it. I said no, this. No, I, I just can't do it. Um, 
it's, it's, I, I, I didn't feel like it was helping me. Um, I, ju I, I just knew that I, I, I knew that that diagnosis was not me because uh, you can't you can't have a normal life. And then like only I knew what was happening. You know, what I mean, like so I know that that marijuana, that, like, like I said, seven and a half months straight of smoking weed from day one, from the first time ever having it. It was just weird, and it was just that was just really, really weird. So I, I stopped it right then and there. Um, I did a lot of like prayer meditation uh, during that 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 time of actually coming out and um, trying to get my mind right and trying to understand, like I said, why is it happening and how can you never ever go back down that road again? And even I still had, and you know, this is just me being honest. I still had a bit of like that franticness uh, within me still. Um, it was, it was like, uh, and I was sensitive to, or overly sensitive, I would actually even say to just so many things that, you know, the, the, the normal person would just kind of dust off their shoulders, but I was, I had a hypersensitivity to it. Um, and, 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 and so during this time of trying to, you know, kind of recalibrate, I kind of actually separated myself from family members, from friends. I didn't, I didn't want want anything to do with anything or anybody um, because I knew that something happened and it had to do with everything that I'm dealing with and the people I'm dealing with. Since I can't, since I don't know what it is, I'm just going to cut everything off and I'm going to actually try to gain my own sanity and bring my own mental adjoinance back into perspective. Um, and so after doing, like I said, prayer meditation, I actually felt like um, I felt like I needed to step away from this uh, situation uh, with the music. Um, I feel like, you know, yeah, I love music and yes, it's taken me th this far, but like I said, something is going on and I need to get to the bottom of it. And having this around me, is only going to be a distraction. It's only going to be a distraction for me, you know, wanting to dot, you know, dibble into whatever it is that I was involved in at that time. And so, um, I just decided to just walk away from the group situation uh, it was crazy because I, I felt it inside of me to walk away. And when I, when I told myself, you know what, I'm going to call the fellas and let them know that I'm going to walk away from this situation. Literally that same day, which was absolutely crazy. Uh, Jay Drew, he called me, him and my other member, they called, they're excited. They're like, Oh my God, it's happening. It's happening. Like I said, we, 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 we recorded all these songs within like a year and a half, but we were, as we were recording, we were still waiting on Pharrell to get everything situated for us. And so at this point now I'm out and I've just decided to walk away. They call me excited, screaming over the phone. It's, it's about to happen. It's finally happening. Pharrell is flying us all out to Miami. We're about to go meet Andre Harrell, who's also a music uh, industry legend who upstarted uh, Puff Daddy, P. Diddy career. Um, so we were going to meet him and all of us, you know, get to get together and get the get things rolling, get the ball rolling on the contract and everything. And um, and I'm sitting there excited. I'm excited because they're excited. And I'm, I'm genuinely excited because this is this is my dream here. We're about to sign a contract with Pharrell. He's flying us all out, all expense paid to Miami. I've never been to Miami at that point. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. And it, especially happening at the point where I just, you know, felt within myself, I actually kind of felt that God was actually telling me to step away from this situation. And, and so now... You're calling me on the day that I've just decided I'm not about to actually walk forward with you guys. And they call and say, we're about to go. And uh, I, I let their excitement build up. And 
I let them talk and 15, 20 minutes of the conversation, I, I had to just kind of let them know I'm like, and, and for me, that was actually, you know, the, I think the average person would take that as, oh yeah, it's time to go. But for me, that was confirmation. When they called on that day, the day that I felt that God was leading me elsewhere, that was confirmation for me that it's definitely time to go. You know, I mean, it's time to walk away right. for, for them to call on that day. Like that was for me, that was the confirmation. Like, it wasn't like, oh yeah, okay, this is a confirmation to go. That was a confirmation that let me know, okay, it's, you, you must walk away from this because, you know, a lot of times, you know, good comes in the place of great and we, we settle for good. And I know this is an awesome opportunity, but I'm feeling that I need to walk away from it. And for me, that would be settling for this good when I know that great is on the other side, whatever that greatness may be. And a lot of times what we deem as greatness may not be our purpose. You know what I mean? And so that, that's where my focus was at that point. I'm trying to accomplish purpose. And this, this, this setback that I've had, it's only going to bring me closer to my purpose. It was only kind of like a wake-up call to what purpose is. And, um, and so I let them know I couldn't go. I gave them my apologies. I really didn't explain to them, you know, really, really what happened. Um, I just kind of let them know that I was going through some things. Um, and, and they kind of just kind of, you know, said they'd be praying for me or whatever. But I can hear the, the, the dismay in their voices. I can hear the probably ang the anger that they may have had towards me. But... I had to do what I had to do for my own sake, for my own sanity and for my own livelihood. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you made the right decision. I mean, your decision was, Hey, it's time to focus on me getting healthy, figuring myself out. Absolutely. Because I, I know for a fact that, you know, I, I didn't know if I could be copacetic in that, you know, unpredictable environment. You're sitting there with, you know, legendary Pharrell Williams, legendary Andre Hillel. I don't know, you know, what type of, you know, things or distractions that could be in my way to just, you know, help me down spiral. I said, no, like, I have to, I have to get myself together. I have to get clarity of thought, get clarity of well-being and clarity of where I need to be going and what my life needs to be going into. Uh, I think that took a, must've taken a lot of courage to be able to say no to your friends. And like I said, I think it's the right choice. You know, obviously you, you needed to focus on you at the time and you prioritized it. Um, you prioritized you. So you had mentioned stopping one particular medicine after 20 days or so of getting out of the hospital. Were you on any kind of medications or, or did you drop all medications? Yeah, I dropped all. Um, originally in the hospital, they actually gave me something called Risperdal. <clears throat> This was while in the hospital, the very first medication they gave me. And this medication, it, it, it actually, I kind of speak about it in my book. The, the psychiatric system is it's, it's, it's just like all systems. It's very, very broken. Um, and it's, it's kind of sad because these are people who are in need. Um, talking about people with you know, mental ailments and, and people dealing with these type of disparities. They need nothing but excellence. When it, when it comes to um, coming to the aid of these people, we don't need to be experimenting on, we don't need to, you know, have, you know, I think this is this, right? Like, you, we, you, you guys need to know, I'm talking about the medical field, they, they need to know what's going on and they need to know how to help these people and not just kind of throw stuff at them. So they just kind of threw this Risperdal at me, here, this is going to help, or this is, you know, 
And then this thing made my brain, how could I make it? How could I explain it to you? It literally felt like someone was pressing down on my head and it made me so sleepy, even when it wasn't time to be sleep. Like I could barely even move. And I'm like, no, no, this, this can't be the drug for me. So I tell the nurse and then they brought something in called Zyprexa. Uh, which, which kind of just it did the same thing on a smaller scale. It wasn't as huge of an effect. Um, and, and so that was the drug that I took home. And like I said, I took that for 20 days and I just kind of threw it like, nah, I'm, I'm not going to do this. So after checking out of the hospital, 20 days on uh, medication, and then since that point until now, you haven't been on any medication at all? No, none whatsoever. Wow. Um, I just, you know, and part of this is probably my own ignorance about schizophrenia, but I just assumed with schizophrenia that you would need some type of medication to help kind of the paranoia symptoms and any of the um, audible hallucinations or or any of that. Have you experienced um, more paranoia and uh, different um, symptoms of your schizophrenia since that point? No, I, I would say I would say early on, like now, like I'm I'm absolutely fine. Um, there there was a period though where that that paranoia I, I actually had to overcome that, and and I believe that the only way that I overcame that was literally like through, through my prayers and, and and focusing in and understanding and having to literally kind of repeat and tell myself like dis- disassociate yourself from it. You know what I mean? Because like I said, I was I was so nervous and oversensitive to the smallest of the smallest of the smallest. Right. And I just I had to kind of tell myself and make my brain understand, dude, that has nothing to do with you. Like that 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 has no attachment to you whatsoever. Detach yourself. And and so I, that that was I did actually have to go through a period where I had to wean myself off of that paranoia, if that makes any sense. It's kind of crazy but that's exactly what it was i had to wean myself off of it because i was like overly paranoid and overly scared for no reason whatsoever did you uh, did you ever have any kind of therapy see a psychologist at all no no wow you really uh, took this upon yourself to to get better I no did. meds no therapy um, yeah because I, I knew exactly I, I, like i was going through it so, yeah. you know, no one, no one around me, I don't care where they're a doctor, nobody can tell me unless they're, they are me, what I need or what I'm going through. Right. Like nobody, only I knew what was happening. I knew what I was before marijuana and I knew what I was post marijuana. And I knew for a fact that that had something to do with it. And so I knew I, there was nothing in me that thought, you know what, maybe I do need this or maybe I am crazy or maybe. It was, it was like, heck, you know, this was a situation where it happened because of my own actions, because of my own neglect to self. And I have to get over this. And I just like how I got myself into it, I have to get myself out. And I think what was a, a truly, truly defining moment for me that really helped me to get totally free from all of that paranoia, all of, you know, it was really the ingestion of information and knowledge. And I go, I go in depth in that, uh, in my book, um, knowledge just totally transformed my mind, transformed my thinking. It's so, so amazing what it is. And 
it's just so because I've, I've talked to other people and they say, wow, I've, I've, you know, nobody's ever mentioned knowledge as something as a curing agent for a mental ailment. I said, tell me about it. But this is exactly what happened. I am totally 1000% cured. And I know that it has to do with knowledge. So, so this is what happened. Um, all right, Albert Einstein, he says that education um, is not the learning of facts, but it's the training of the mind to think. If we could, if we could really, really deeply understand that that phrase, education is not the learning of facts, but it's the training of the mind to think. So, I was taking in information, and it was okay. How, how could I explain it? Let's let's say a book like um, uh, what is that book? Um, the Selfish Gene. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, the Selfish Gene pretty much kind of tells you how important you are. Basically, it goes on about, you know, your sperm, even even you fought, you were the sperm that won, you fought all the other sperms, and now you're born. And so I'm, I'm giving you a, a bit of so, so just that one piece of knowledge of understanding that I'm significant, because from day one, I was significant. My, you know, my sperm that fought up every other sperm demanded that I was significant. And so everything that, that could be in my brain that says, you know what, you, you are not live. You don't have a place here. You're not wanted. You're not accepted. All of that was eradicated with that one piece of information. Dude, your sperm fought off every other sperm. And so, so, so like I said, go back to the Albert Einstein. He said, you know, not education isn't the learning of facts, but it's the training of the mind. So it wasn't one piece of single information or one single fact that overthrew my thinking. It was the adding on and toppling over on every piece of fact that was literally training my mind to see from a new lens. And I just, oh my God, I just consumed so much knowledge, so much information. And within a matter of a week, I literally felt the transformation happen. And I'm talking about clear. It's almost like, you, you know, you, you have like uh, a shady vision. You know, you have something in your eye. You clean out your eye and boom, all of a sudden you can see perfectly clear. It, it was like that type of transformation with my brain, though. I, like my vision from my brain just literally shifted and everything was so clear. It was like, whoa. And how I even got on, you know, knowledge as, as that curing agent. Um, I've always been ambitious, always strive for excellence, even before the whole ordeal. And so I, I've never dropped that mentality. And so there was a person online, um, he, he made a blanket statement. He's actually a multimillionaire owner of multiple businesses. And he said, you know, the number one reason why um, the wealthy are wealthy, the rich are rich, is because of knowledge. Mm. He said, he said, the your Mark Zuckerberg, you know, if anyone on this planet knew how to build Facebook or anything close to it, guess what? They would. Well, why didn't they? It's because they don't know how. So the rich are rich and the wealthy are wealthy because they know something that the rest of us don't know. And this guy, he goes on and on about, you know, informing yourself and, you know, not being a uh, statistic to your own ignorance, but you need to actually be growing in knowledge on a daily basis, waking up wiser than you were than, than the day before. And so at that at that notion of, OK, if, if I just build build on my knowledge, the life that I see for myself, the future that I see for myself, it'll, it'll automatically come into existence because I'll be bringing on and taking on the know how to do it. I'll be training my mind. 
And so I just did it based off of that, just off of the wealth aspect. I just wanted my future to look how I envisioned it. And so I, that's when I really started getting into knowledge. Little did I know that that knowledge would just, t- I'm just talking about the transformation that happened was insane, insane. I, I, I just saw through a new lens and I said, whoa, I, I knew from that, that moment there is no such thing as all this other stuff that I was thinking, this paranoia, this clarity on a hundred. Man, it, it was crazy. Yeah, that is, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think knowledge is really a critical piece of um, anybody's recovery, right? I mean, it seems like that was a major piece of yours. I certainly um, gained a lot of knowledge from a, a lot of my own research around depression. And when I was in a hospitalization program, there was a lot of education given to us. And and I think that certainly was a piece of many different pieces to my recovery, but certainly a large part. Um do you uh, have thoughts about the stigma at all? A lot of people talk about the stigma um, of mental illness. Yeah, um, and th- that's why I'm really kind of, ba- I want to battle that quote-unquote stigma with my book and this fundraising that I'm doing. We, we have to see ourselves properly. I, I think we're, we're falling into a narrative that the people in society has deemed, um, maybe based off of a doctor or somebody with uh, you know, that title, and we're falling under, okay, I'm this because you said I am, because I was going through this, then I'm this. It's so funny. I did my research and I actually put it in the book as well. Um, there's so many psychiatrists around the world that are actually trying to get the truth out and they don't even understand why people are taking these medications. They don't understand why they're associating themselves with all of these names that they're just coming up with, schizophrenia, ADHD, all these things this is how this is the the research that I did from all the doctors that I've studied who are I'm so we're talking about millions of doctors who try who are trying to get medications out of the psychiatric system because they're actually causing more damage than anything this this whole um, notion of a chemical imbalance it's been alive from day one through my research that I found through this through these psychologists. They said how it even this this term chemical imbalance came about was through Eli Lilly, which is the cult was which is the founder of one of the the number one uh uh, uh medication uh, manufacturers in the entire world, talking about one hundred and ninety five different countries. Or he's I think he's he's actually number one in 125 countries of the 195 countries. And so what happened was, I don't know if you're familiar with the name Prozac, but it was a it was a, a balance or it was it was a medication that was brought on uh, uh, to into, into, you know, our, our you know system or whatever to, to battle. What was it? Something. So the PR claim, you know, we know what PR marketing is. It's nothing but, hey, I'm this is this. And I want you to buy this. The, this word chemical imbalance or this term chemical imbalance never existed until Prozac came. This was the this was the PR, like the commercial that they said, hey, you have uh, you have whatever your ailment is or you have a chemical. This is what they say. You have a chemical imbalance and Prozac is going to cure it. That was the PR claim. And from that day. The entire world started saying, oh, these people have chemical imbalances. These people have chemical imbalances. Never, ever has science ever proven of any chemical imbalance, but only science is on the side of saying that actually the drugs that you're putting in yourself are causing a chemical imbalance. 
it is so twisted and it's so crazy. But so so that stigma, you know, we're replacing, we're putting our, we're putting ourselves under this hypnosis of what's what the world is telling us, and we're believing our own lies. We're believing what someone else has told us when you know yourself better than anybody. That's interesting. You know, I think. Uh I think medication is definitely controversial. Um, I think there is pretty minimal research, long-term research around um, antidepressants and probably the psych- antipsychotic meds. Um, and I think you know, a, a big sense. piece. A big piece for me is just um, not judging people, right? Like I think some people feel like medication is a part of their help it i believe it helped me it's not the one piece that i rely on and uh so i think there are lots of different thoughts and opinions about it but i do believe that one who believes uh medications aren't helpful should not be judging those who take it and vice versa Uh, you know we need to respect each other's choices mental illness is incredibly complicated and I yeah. think all of us make the best choices we can. Like you said, you know yourself best. Um, I think, like you said, knowledge, educate yourself, engage in conversations so it it never feels like doctors are throwing meds at you. At least ask them questions, right, so that you yeah. can understand why they're talking about different meds and such. Um, what about, you know, I wanted to touch a little bit on um, the fact that you're a person of color, right? Are you a black male? Yes, I am. So as a black male, I just know, like, I noticed very clearly in a three-week partial hospitalization program, never saw a black person. Saw, I saw one wow. black man who was there for two days when it's typically a three-week program. And I think I would imagine as a black male, the stigma is even more difficult. I think as a man, there's the stereotype of men are tough. You know, you can't be weak. You can't say you need help. You can't go to a doctor for a mental illness and you got to just toughen up and, and bear through it. And a lot of men deal with depression on their own for a long time because of that stigma. And I can only assume it's even more challenging, um, as a black male who's really supposed to, you know, be the tough guy who, who's strong and can handle this on a, on their own. So can you speak at all being a black male, what it's like, the stigma? Well, I don't, I don't really know. I don't, cause I haven't done my like research and, you know, in terms of the, you know, the racial uh, differences with the, with the diagnosis or, you know, into any type of um, ailments, mental ailments, um, so I, I honestly, I don't have a, an opinion on the, you know, the black male stigma. Um, I've never even associated myself with that, you know, black and white or, you know, this, that and the other. I, I literally move the way I move based on the way I move. And I'm not I'm not really caring of what color is in front of me. I, I really I really can't. I don't know. Do you feel like the, the black community is open to mental illness and understand and believing in mental illness and believing that it's okay for to go seek out help. Yes, yeah, since 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 the situations happened to me, so, so you know how when you buy a car and suddenly like you, you don't see this car all the time. As soon as you buy a car, suddenly you see the same car on the road all around you. I like, have well, definitely experienced that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So, so now that I'm a part of this conversation and part of this community, because I've had this experience, 
now I'm seeing so many things pop up around me and, and you know, and online and, you know, people who I follow on Instagram, things like I am seeing a lot of, you know, things where, you know, people of, of color are like, you know, kind of speaking up about mental Ill- illness and, and supporting one another and, and really supporting that whole movement and, and saying that, hey, you know, it is okay to, to, to go through whatever you're going through and, we have a, you know, we have a big, you know, crowd of remnant behind you who's, you know, who's pushing for you, who's rooting for you. I actually have seen that. But like I said, I, I can't actually, you know, associate myself with it because I haven't experienced it. But I've seen that definitely. It's, yeah. it's, it's popping up around me. Yeah, it's been exciting to see a lot of well-known, a couple of big time um, black athletes have come out recently and spoken about their depression. Um, and a couple uh, in the NBA, the NFL. Yeah. Um, and black males. So I, I've been excited to see just a lot more people speaking about it and a lot more yeah. people coming out saying it is okay. And we, it's, you know, n- there's no shame in talking about somebody coming down with cancer, having to deal with diabetes, heart disease, but it's been a lot of hush hush about the mental illness. And it's so good to see people open up and talking about it and, and engaging in conversations like we are here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the athletes that I have seen come out, it is. I think I do. I, I, see, I see another side, like I said, because now I'm a part of this community. I'm a part of this conversation. And it, it does feel good. It, it really does feel good to see people coming out and sharing their story and enlightening you know, that stigma, lightening the mood on that and letting it be, it, it should be a normal conversation. Just like, oh, I cut my arm. It, sh- it should be just that simple and just that easy. And somebody should be able to say, oh, let me give you a band-aid for that. Let me help you out. Right. Exactly. So, hey, you've alluded to it a couple times. You've mentioned it a couple times, but tell us a bit more about your book. Uh, so, so the book kind of just kind of goes through my entire, um, uh, situation with the Pharrell situation, why I walked away from it, uh, cover self-esteem. Uh, it begins by kind of setting you up, uh, setting the reader up with some of my underlying uh, childhood experiences that may have helped um, in my decision making as an adult. Um, th- those bad decisions, of course, um, a lot of verbal abuse amongst my siblings, um, a lot of aggressive behavior, um, which which would cause uh, there be to, to, there to be low self esteem, uh, to to not feel accepted, uh, to feel less than, um, and I'm number nine, so you know, and, and I'm the I'm the I'm the youngest boy, and so my mom just kind of really really adored me. She affirmed me. Uh, I was probably say much much more than I've seen her affirm any of my other children, and I believe that they all had like uh, jealousy and envy towards me because of it, and um, it, it affected me. Uh, it really really did affect. It affected me as a youth, and I, I, I did my best to actually step away from it almost like really not almost but i had to like numb myself to that um and and i think those i think that 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 has some implications um on my you know decision making as an adult and and where my brain was going and and you know that paranoia and thinking that you know people had negative things to say about me and people you know i I really do believe that i had so i I set up the the front of my book or the the beginning portion of my book uh just about my 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 upbringing uh, in general and how all those things could have affected it down the line. Um, I speak on, uh, what do I speak on? Uh, obviously, you know, mental health and the, the whole broken psychiatric uh, system. 
um, get with, with, you know, hitting you guys with research on so many, so many um, psychiatrists who are totally and one thousand percent against uh, medications and it's really, really going into how can we love these people? Just how we just got done talking. How can we actually care for these people and not just, Hey, let me just throw this at you. And then on to the next, like, no, that there's something going on. There's something really, really going on with this person and that they need some help and they need someone to actually get through to the core of, of this issue. And it's, it's just not like a one and done here, take this. And then, and I'm, I'm on to the next one next. You know, it's, it shouldn't be that. Um, and so I kind of, I kind of go, go thorough uh, into that. Um, and then I actually give that actionable steps to, to overthrow um, harmful thinking. And this is for the person dealing with mental illness or this is for the person who, who doesn't see their future coming into fruition, um, who, who is afraid of success, who is afraid of uh, whatever barriers that they feel that may be, even, you know, color barriers or whatever type of stigma that, that, that they may see in front of them. Um, I give people actionable steps on how to remove those and, and step into you know your your true self and your greater your greatest self uh, so that we the world can see your you at your best that sounds like an incredible book it is i mean I'm, I'm 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 sure i'm biased to say it but honestly looking from an unbiased standpoint it, it really is it is a great piece of work and it is not yet published correct not yet published uh, it's in manuscript form um, I have the, a fundraiser for the marketing, uh, the proper marketing and launching of the book. I just wanted to get uh, into the hands that it needs to get into. Uh, I wanted to impact people, as many people as possible. And so I'm asking for a total of $9,000 to market and promote this book. Um, right now, we're a little bit over $1,200 in the fundraiser. And what I'm doing is who, whomever donates even a penny, it doesn't matter whatsoever because every amount is a needle pusher uh, to, to the goal. And so literally somebody can go in and donate a penny and I'll send them the original manuscript of the book. Uh, so you'd be the first, you know, to actually get the book and hopefully I can get some feedback and, you know, and, and join in on the dialogue. Tell me what they you know think about it, what, what they think I should change, what they think I, I can add, because I'm always trying to, you know, I do know that this is a quote unquote product and I am bringing a service uh, to the people. And so I would love for people to have a hand in me bringing what they want to read. You know what I mean? And so that feedback is going to maybe help me to even adjust the book more, or do whatever I have to do. But I just want to get it to many as many hands as possible. And so that's what the fundraiser is for. Ah, oh, that's awesome. So if any of the listeners right now to the Depression Files, our podcast here, want to donate, uh, how would they be able to do that? Uh, they can go to youcaring.com slash Project Genius of a Schizophrenic. Again, that's youcaring.com slash Project of a Schizophrenic. Project Genius of a Schizophrenic. Great. All right. Awesome. I'll make sure that uh, I get that in the show notes, too, with a link so that people can uh, easily get to your website to donate. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Man. Uh, do you have any kind of timeline that you're shooting for to get this thing published? I was thinking maybe towards like the back end of summer. Okay. Um, but we'll see exactly how things are kind of rolling out and panning out. But that is the goal though. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so I'm wondering if you have, uh, any kind of parting words, any kind of advice for, for any of the listeners who might be going through some depression or, uh, schizophrenia currently. 
um, yeah, any mental element whatsoever or, or any, like I said, barrier that's keeping you from achieving and seeing that life that you know that you are supposed to have, that you envision, that future that you see for yourself. I would say that know who you are, believe in yourself, don't let any one body, doesn't matter who they are, parents, whoever, don't let any one body tell you who you are, tell you what you can't do because of what they think is whatever about you. You know you, strive for greatness, increase your knowledge on a daily basis because that's the only way that your future will come into fruition because you have to know what it is that you're doing. And that's what knowledge does for us. And you are perfect. You are loved. You are great. There's nothing, uh, you have no deficiency. You're only wanting to better yourself. You're, you're only trying to maximize on the person you are. That's it. Yeah, man, that's fantastic advice. Well, Nate, I want to thank you again. Really appreciate the time you've uh, taken for the interview. Uh, you've got an incredible story. You've come a long ways and uh make sure you stay healthy yes sir i appreciate it thank you so much for having me man. i really really appreciate it this was an awesome experience thank you for listening to the depression files please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide please reach out for help in the united states you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.